Morning, Living Stones. There's a church where they had a plaque that was in the hallway, and on it were the names of men who had lost their lives uh, in the military, who had been members of that church. And one day a 10-year-old boy was standing in the aisle looking at it and reading the names, and he turned to his mother and he says, Mom, what is this about? She says, well, son, these are men who lost their lives in the service. And he said, was it the first or second service? <laughs> um, <clears throat> I hope you will all survive this one. But we are this week celebrating Memorial Day weekend, and many have called it the unofficial open to summer. Uh, but as I like to do every time I get up here is to deliver a little bit of history to go with it, because I think it's appropriate as we study through the book of Judges uh, to look at Memorial Day, because there is the fifth chapter of Judges, a memorial song. Uh, and so it's appropriate to understand that Memorial Day began on May 30th, 1868, in Waterloo, New York. And uh, this was done by a former general in the Union Army by the name of John Logan. And uh, he, what he did was he started decorating the graves of those Union soldiers that were buried there in Waterloo, New York. And pretty soon this began to catch on across the country, eventually... Um, U.S. Grant, uh, who was, of course, the conquering general for the Union Army, and uh, James A. Garfield, who had served as a general uh, in the Union forces, uh, were together at Arlington Cemetery decorating the, the graves. It became a custom, but it was not an official holiday. It didn't become an official holiday until 1971. Uh, that's because the Congress in 1968 passed what they called the Uniform Monday Holiday Act, so that May 30th was no longer the day that would be observed, but it would be the, first, or the last Monday in May, and they did this to give federal workers a three-day holiday. So we overpaid bureaucrats are all responsible for why we celebrate it today. But uh, it is a day to honor uh, those who gave their lives and their service to their country. And regardless of what you may think of uh, wars and its effect, or even whether you might be what is called a conscientious objector to serving in the military, we have to understand that this is the nature of human governments. Human governments exist because they um, use the military to conquer and then to defend. Uh, and as long as we have human governments, we're going to have wars. The scriptures even say there's, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Uh, and that's prior to the end. There's always going to be wars and rumors of wars. Today we even have wars and rumors of war because that's what the U.S., or rather what the uh, human condition is. And you may remember that back in 1948, uh, the um, folks got together, the elites of the various governments, and they said, you know, we're going to form this organization that will be able to mediate and avoid future conflicts like World War II that had just ended. Uh, and so in New York, they built this great big building, and they had various governments contribute to it. Of course, the biggest benefactor of this organization happens to be your tax dollars uh, contributing to it. Uh, but I want to ask you how well that's worked 
in the last 71 years. Uh, we still have wars, rumors of wars. We still have people who are being oppressed. We still have that. But we contrast that with the government of God. And the government of God is completely different. And that's why the disciples of Jesus Christ are different than the citizens of this world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. And so, uh, as I mentioned, chapter 5 of the uh, book of Judges is actually a memorial song commemorating a great victory given to uh, Israel. So we're going to continue our study this morning from the book of Judges. And as you remember, last week we looked uh, basically at Judges 3, where Ehud was raised up as a deliverer for the nation of Israel. Uh, and he raised up an army and defeated their oppressors. And uh, Ehud uh, got a great victory by God. But what we find is that what precipitated the rise of Ehud as a judge in Israel was that the Israel lives through a continuing cycle that just seems never to end. They follow God for a period of time, and then they enter into sin and worshiping of false gods. The very first commandment that God gave them, you shall have no other gods before me. They were breaking that before Moses even came down from Mount Sinai with the covenant. And then they, as they fall into sin and worship their false gods, then they become enslaved and oppressed. And God allowed people... Uh, to remain in the land of Canaan to oppress and entrap the people to see if they would be faithful to him. And of course, they keep failing over and over again. And so when they become oppressed, then they cry out to God, and God sends a deliverer, and then they're rescued. And this happens over and over and over again. Uh, I heard about a... Now, that some of you are too young to remember this, but when I was growing up, we had these Coca-Cola dispensers, the old red ones with the Coca-Cola symbol on it. You've probably seen pictures of it, even if you wouldn't experience it. But they only cost a dime to get a Coke. Uh, but this one machine uh, wasn't working any longer, and so they put a sign on it that said, Soda, $5. And somebody saw it, and this is back when you can get one for $0.10, cents, and somebody saw it and said, Soda, $5? What, what is that? And he says, well... It's not really $5, he says, but this way I don't have to keep telling people not to keep putting their 10 cents in. And uh, that's the way human nature is. We do something over and over and over again. Einstein is credited with saying that insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. And I think that tends to be our cycle of living as well. And I think we've all fallen into that trap where we want to do the right thing, and we're committed to it, but we keep failing. Paul said in Romans, the first, uh, seventh chapter, verse 14 and 15, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. So again, we go through this cycle just like Israel did, where we connect with God, then sin takes over, and we behave slavishly to the sin. And finally, we reach that dark soul of the night where we say, okay, God, rescue me, and God delivers us. And then we'll find ourselves doing it over and over again, just like Israel did. So this time, we're moving into the book of Judges, chapter 4, where it says, beginning with verse 1, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. Now that the 
virtuous man who was leading them was gone and his full influence was no longer upon the nation, they did evil again in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jobin, king of Canaan, who reigned at Hazor. Now, Jobin was not his name. That was the title. It meant king. Uh, uh, the king of Canaan reigned in Hazor. And what had happened was that he was able to bisect the land of Canaan so that the tribes were separated one from another, and he kind of had free reign and controlled them. And he oppressed them. And the scripture goes on to say that Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harasheth Hagoim because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. And they cried to the Lord for help. You know, when it talks about 900 chariots fitted with iron, that may sound very crude and uh, ancient to us, but that was state-of-the-art military science back then. Uh, and it was a display of the immense power that uh, the king of Canaan had. And he used these instruments of war to oppress the people of Israel. And it's the nature of human governments in the, uh, to rely upon military power. And we've all observed this, if we pay any attention to what's going on around us. As I was growing up, it was the Cold War. I'm a child of the, of the baby boomer generation. Uh, and so after World War II, we had this rivalry between the Soviet Union and the United States, and one would build a nuclear armament, and another would try to top it, and they kept it proliferating until they went into discussions about how to reduce it and so forth. But it was always who had the most. That was the one that was going to predominate. Uh, and so we... we we have these fears all the time about what will happen if a nuclear war is waged against us. I remember in the early 1950s, the civil defense uh, organizations came out with uh, videos, uh, and we had exercises in school called duck and cover. Now, I never really understood how this was going to help. For a child who, under a nuclear attack, would get under their wooden desk and bow down and cover their head, how that was going to keep them not only away from the radiation fallout, but also from the initial blast itself. The fact of the matter is, there would be simply a shadow on the wall that used to be Chuck. But, uh, but that's what we had. We had those little exercises, and that continued on into the 60s. Uh, because we're worried. Because our faith was in armaments, not in God. The psalmist says in Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots, and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now it also says, Sisera and his 900 chariots of iron uh, waged a cruel oppression against the people of Israel. And we find that governments oppress all the time. We have oppressions going on in our world right now. If you're paying any attention at all to what's going on around the world, not just in our country, but around the world, you'll find that there are those who are dictators, those who are in control of their governments, who oppress people for whom they have a disagreement. As a matter of fact, in some nations right now, Christians are being put to death simply because of that wonderful name we sung about a while ago. And churches are being destroyed. There's oppression. There was oppression in the days of Jesus when the Romans ruled the world. It used to be that a Roman soldier could walk into any street in Israel and they could command a Jew to carry their gear one mile to save them the load. As a matter of fact, Jews used to stake out from their house one mile marker so they didn't have to go beyond that. And you remember what Jesus said in that Sermon on the Mount? He says, you know, if you're compelled to go one mile, go with them how many? 
too. Go above and beyond. In other words, don't adhere to the standards of this world, but let's live by a higher standard. So oppression is currently going on all over the world. And finally, the oppression in Israel in the days of the judges got so great that Israel cried out to the Lord. Now I would ask you this morning, have you ever reached the point that all you could do was cry out to the Lord? Where all of your options are gone, and the only thing you can think to do is simply say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, just like that tax collector uh, in the New Testament. If you haven't experienced that yet, you probably haven't gotten really honest with yourself yet. Uh, I know that a lot of you, you may not have read Victor Hugo's novel, but you're familiar with Les Miserables. That's, that's the real French pronunciation, Les Miserables. Say it with me, Les Miserables. You say Les Mis for short. Uh, I took French in high school, and my teacher said you should have taken Spanish. But <clears throat> Les Miserables is the story of Jean Valjean. And Jean Valjean had been arrested and imprisoned because he stole a loaf of bread to help feed a hungry relative. And he had a long prison term. And when he was released from prison, he was assigned a number, and he was labeled seemingly for the rest of his life as a convict. And so he was an outcast of society. And he found some comfort in the home of a bishop who happened to have some articles of silver and other treasures that in the middle of the night Jean Valjean tried to put into a bag and take off with, but he was caught. And the authorities came to arrest him, and when they came to arrest him, the bishop said, no, I gave him these. These are his. And there was that turning in his life then in which he decided that he was no longer going to be a thief, but he was going to be a productive citizen. And he became a leading light in his community. And for years and years, he assumed another identity and became the kind of individual you'd want around you. Until one day, he was being pursued by this wonderful cop by the name of Javert. That's how you pronounce it. Say it with me, Javert. I feel like a French teacher all of a sudden. And uh, Javert would not stop his pursuit. He kept looking for Jean Valjean, and if he finally got Jean Valjean because he was a man of the letter of the law, then he would feel like his, uh, his uh, career was complete. And there was a man arrested for stealing apples that Javert believed was Jean Valjean. And he was going to have him sentenced and taken back to prison to serve more of a term. And this became known to Jean Valjean, the real one. So what would the real Jean Valjean do? A crisis of the soul began. All night long he wrestled with the most difficult choice. Should he keep silent or should he reveal his identity and return to prison? Now his first impulse, like it would be probably for all of us, was to do nothing and say nothing. But the next morning his carriage arrived at the court where the innocent man was about to be sentenced. And he arrived just as the sentence was about to be pronounced and said, I am the real Jean Valjean. And as he left the courtroom, in chains, he said, All of you consider me worthy of pity, do you not? When I think of what I was on the verge of doing, I consider that I am worthy to be envied. God, who is on high, looked down at what I am doing at this moment, and it is enough. Jean Valjean, even though it's fiction, had that dark night of the soul in which he confronted his sin and his life and decided, I'm going to do the right thing.
Psalm chapter 40, verses 1 through 3, the psalmist says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in Him. We have to put our trust in our God. And so Israel returned and did evil, but then they cried out. And so now comes a judge that is different from all the others. Continuing in chapter 4, verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. Okay, this is a very unusual thing, especially in those days. For a woman in a man's world, there's something different about Deborah. And I don't mean Caitlyn Jenner different. I mean (laughs) women were viewed more as property. Maybe God, and I believe this may be the theory that I would follow, maybe God wanted to shake up the status quo because the status quo needs to be shaken up every so often. And in a world run by men, a world of men run by men, it was a bit unusual. Uh, So Deborah is this wise woman who had been held in such esteem by the nation of Israel that they traveled to her spot under the palm trees to get her decisions about the disputes that they were hearing, and they respected her. She had this respect to the nation. And verse 6 continues and says, She sent for Barak, son of Abinom, from Kedesh and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go Take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I... It must be time to leave. My wife told me last week, you know, if you want to make your sermon a little bit better, cut about 10 minutes off of it. So we'll see you all next Sunday. No, I'm just kidding. Stay right where you're at. I appreciate the applause, but that wasn't real. <clears throat> so... The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jobin's army, and his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give them into your hands. So, you know, if you get a message from God that's pretty direct like that, wouldn't you follow that? So how did Barak, how did he respond? This was his moment. This was his Ben-Hur moment. Not his Spartacus moment. He could have been this Ben-Hur moment. But notice his response in verse 8. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Now what kind of a wimp is this anyway? Why this kind of a response? Uh, Is his motto, go fight like a girl? I think it might be. And so Deborah responds... All right, that's what you got to say. Here's what I've got to say. Verse 9, certainly I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Now, at this point, if we hadn't read on ahead, we would think, yeah, Deborah's going to be the one to strike the fatal blow on Sisera. But we're going to have a second heroine enter into this story. So Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh, and there Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, And 10,000 men went up under his command, and Deborah also went up with him. Now, again, 
When we're looking at the book of Judges, we probably got this conception in our mind that these are people who are leading, who have been working out in the gym eight hours every day and are all muscle-bound and fit and taking on everybody and defeating them by their own strength. But the fact of the matter is, I don't believe that's the way it was at all. I think it was the power of God that gave and delivered the people from their oppressors. Uh, these were ordinary people. You might wonder why these broken cement blocks are up here. This is to symbolize that these are broken. These are humans, flesh and blood people, just like you and I, who were committed to God and followed God's leading and allowed God's power to go and work through them. So now we get prepared for the second introduction of the heroine, second heroine introduction, beginning with verse 11. Now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim near Kedesh. Now this is a brief setup in the narrative for the last part of the story. And now we're introduced to Sisera, the hero of the Canaanites. Sisera... Sisera was like the highest-ranking general in Jobin's army. He was the guy that had charge of those 900 chariots of iron and all of the other parts of the king's army. And verse 12 says, When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinom, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Harasheth Hagoim to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Now, to us, we may be thinking, well, this is pretty archaic. This is a scene out of Ben-Hur. But the fact of the matter is, if we had lived back then, what we'd be looking at is something that was truly awesome and horrendous and awe-inspiring. We would be filled with fear. Verse 14, Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. So this tremendous army, this state-of-the-art military machine, is now being vanquished by a bunch of ragtag folks that have been called down from the hills by these two tribes uh, and is taking them on and being defeated. Barak pursued the uh, chariots and army as far as Harasheth Hagoim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Now, how did this ragtag army, quickly mustered, become able to defeat a professional army with the latest military technology? And I think Judges 5, verses 4 and 5, gives us a clue. Now, in Judges 5, what we have is that memorial song uh, sung by Deborah and Barak, sort of like Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton. Uh, and they're singing about what took place. And what took place in verses 4 and 5 says, When you, Lord, went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. My theory is that God used his power to open up the forces of nature to stymie this military complex that had come out against the people of Israel. Uh, I, I don't know how many of you were alive or remember, but there was a system of three tornadoes that went through the state of Indiana back in 1965, in April of that year. They were called the Palm Sunday Tornadoes. 
We were, I lived in Kokomo at the time, and I remember I just started my first job at a place called Crescent Dairy. I was loading milk trucks, and I was also a soda jerk. I didn't learn the soda part as well as I learned the jerk part. But uh, as that was going on, there was a funeral home of half a block away from me, and I was watching that ambulances and hearses going out from there almost all night. We were safe in where we were, but after the tornado had hit, I went out and I picked up hailstones that big around, the big as a softball. And they were all over the place. And can, can you imagine if you'd been hit in the head by one of those, what would have happened to you? Uh, it was amazing to me that nobody in Kokomo, there were in surrounding communities, but nobody in Kokomo was killed. Uh, but there was tremendous damage. I actually put those hailstones in a uh, freezer we had there at the dairy to preserve this evidence of this tremendous storm. But our power was out for a week, and so they were lost. But I believe God opened up the floodgates of heaven, and all of the river and the water that came in so mired down the terrain that those 900 chariots of iron, this state-of-the-art military equipment, had no place to go. They just got mired down. The horses couldn't move. And God, in his great display of power, shows us how weak man really is. How many of you ever heard of a nuclear electromagnetic pulse? We're, we're, in, we're vulnerable in this country to something like what they call an EMP. And if some fourth-rate power like North Korea were to explode a nuclear device at a certain level in our atmosphere and the pulse knocked out a large portion of our grid, we would lose all electric power. Can you imagine how devastating that would be to us as a civilization where the forces of nature unleashed cause us to lose all of our ability to interact with one another? Some of you who are right now thumbing through your pages on your iPhone instead of listening to the sermon wouldn't be able to do that anymore. <laughs> we couldn't post anything on Facebook because there would be no more Facebook. We couldn't get our cars to start. And if we did, there would be no place to go because all gas would be depleted. I mean, we could be totally devastated. So when we think we've got it all nailed down, when we think we're very invulnerable to all of these things, don't underestimate the power of Almighty to frustrate mankind. All right, enough of that. Jail is the second heroine we're introduced to. Verse 17. Caesarea, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Eber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Job and king of Hazor and the family of Heber the Kenite. You know, they were considered friends. They didn't, a non-aggression pact. And Jael went out to meet Caesarea and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he, answered, so he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. And he said, I'm thirsty. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. She didn't give him water. He gave him milk. Now, what happens when you drink milk just before bed? You're out. And especially if you've been fleeing from your enemy trying to kill you, and you've journeyed all day, and you're fearful for your life. Have you ever been so tired and so drained that you fell into bed and you just could not be moved? Where your wife had to put a feather under your nose to see if you were still alive. I mean, it doesn't happen very often, but you can be so exhausted and fatigued that you just have that kind of deep rest. Teenagers have it quite frequently. Um, but she invites him in. He falls fast asleep. She gives him milk to drink, and he tells her, go stand in the doorway of the tent. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone there, say no. 
Because after all, he thinks she's an ally. But Jael, the second woman, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. And she drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Now, even as we read those words, you have to wince a little bit. I told you last week, Judges is a gruesome book. Now, the author doesn't talk about the pool of blood that starts to form underneath Caesar's head. I'm providing that free of charge. If I were there, I'd be putting up crime scene tape right now. But what we can say is she really nailed that dude. And so he was replaced by a woman. Verse 22, just then Barak came in by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with a tent peg through his temple, dead. Okay, and that's not the end of the story. Then the king, for whom Sisera was general, is utterly destroyed. Verse 23, on that day... God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. And Israel was delivered. And then, as I mentioned in, verse, in chapter 5, there is a song of victory. And we're not going to read through all of chapter uh, 5. I'll let you do that on your own. But it talks about the fact that God delivered them by God's power. It is God's who is being celebrated in that song of victory. As I read through the story, it closes, the chapter of 5 closes out after the song by saying, Then the land had peace for 40 years. Wouldn't you like to have absolute peace for 40 years? Now some of you who are younger, you probably want to extend that. For someone my age, 40 years, unless I live to be 110, that's good for me. But the land had peace for 40 years. Next week, when we continue our study in Judges, we're going to find out that that cycle started up all over again, and they're going to need another deliverer, because that's the nature of man. But in that song that Deborah and Barak sang... They also asked the question, some of you of the other tribes, why didn't you come to help? Those of you by the coast, why didn't you come in and help your brothers? Why didn't you, over in this tribe, come and help us? Why just two tribes? And they fought in this valley called Megiddo. Some places in their scriptures is referred to as Armageddon. A lot of valleys... Not, there's not many places you can fight, but that place has been the scene of a lot of fights, even down to the days of Napoleon. And today, it's a place of grave interest for those who are thinking about national security. And it's all delivered to the Israelites because of the power of God. As we close out this phase, I would ask you, what are you doing to answer God's call? When he asked for Barak to raise up an army and go defeat, Barak says, okay, I'll go only if Deborah goes with me. 
God is calling you to do some things today. How are you going to respond? I'll go, but somebody else has to show me the way, has to lead me. Somebody else has to pick the load. God's asking you to carry your load this morning. 